Our psalm reading this morning is Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, You know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. That I know very well. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. It's a privilege to be with you. It's wonderful to see your faces, to worship with you. If you're new here, if you're visiting, I hope you'll stick around. I'd love to meet you for just a few moments. And if you are new, we've been going through a series, a rather extended series, on spiritual formation. What does it look like? How do you cultivate conditions in your life in which you can flourish and you can grow spiritually? And if you've been around, one of the themes that I hope that you've picked up on in this series is that spiritual transformation is full of mystery. It's not mechanical. It's not A plus B equals C, always and ever. We can be open to it, and we can create conditions for growth. Just like if you plant a flower, or just like if you plant a flower bed, you can lay seeds, you can put plants in the ground, you can fertilize them, but you need something external to make them grow. You need sun, and you need rain. Or in the case of spiritual formation, you need the power of God himself to work with the conditions that you're cultivating in an intentional way. And that's what we're trying to do here in this series. That's what we try to do on Sunday morning in our community groups, in our Bible studies, as well as in our personal lives, that we cultivate conditions for growth, but we can't accomplish it on our own. Think with me about how this applies to this idea of the spiritual rhythm of self-examination, which we're looking at this morning. And we sort of naturally believe that there are things about God that can't be known without divine revelation. That is, he has to make them known to us. He has to make us aware of certain things about who he is. But could this be true about the process of knowing ourselves? Is there an aspect of who we are, or actually many aspects, that we can't fully understand, that can't be fully recognized and known without divine revelation? That it's the same sort of concept. And I think this passage says yes, but that doesn't make it easy because opening ourselves up to scrutiny 
inviting God's examination, inviting the revelation of God to show us actually who we are, to reveal to us our inner thoughts and our inner motives, that we are able to bring our whole being into contact with God and just not just the parts that we want to, that he wants to change all of us and not just the places that we know that we need to change. Well, that's difficult. That's scary. That's intimidating. At least it is for me. Richard Rohr, who is one of the preeminent writers on spiritual development, says this, many avoid the path of self-knowledge because they are afraid of being swallowed up in their own abysses. But Christians have confidence that Christ has lived through all the abysses of human life and that he goes with us when we dare to engage in sincere confrontation with ourselves. Because God loves us unconditionally, along with our dark sides, we don't need to dodge ourselves. In the light of this love, the pain of self-knowledge can be at the same time the beginning of our healing. Well, that's one of the ways that the Bible talks about salvation. It is the healing process that begins in the individual soul, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, even physically. But few of us want healing. Few of us would reach out for healing if it involves us opening up our deeper selves, our true selves, if you will, to examination. Why is this? Well, maybe it's because we've grown up in shame-based systems, shame-based churches or families, and we've learned to hide our true selves because saying what you really think gets you into trouble. You've been conditioned to think that if people know the real truth about you, that you'll be judged and rejected. And maybe you've been living out of that false self that you've created for so long, you're not sure where the false self ends and the true self begins. So opening ourselves up to external scrutiny is scary and maybe even a little dizzying. Don't we all long, and we've talked about this multiple times in the series, don't we all long to be fully known and fully loved? Love for who we really are and not who we perceive ourselves to be or who others perceive us to be. Don't we get tired of the masquerade and in our truer moments want to let someone in fully? Well, Psalm 139 begins with a rather menacing realization The first couple of verses, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Everything that can be known about David, the psalmist, he believes God already knows. He knows more about David than David knows about himself. And if that's true of David, it's true of you and I, that everything that can be known about you is known intimately and exhaustively by God. What we're trying so hard to hide from others, maybe even from ourselves, is known already by God. And as one writer said, the point of the psalm probably isn't to invite God to know me because that's already happened, but to invite God to help me know me. And this involves, obviously, going into some of the dark places in our lives, some of the things that feel like abysses, that if we go there, we can't ever get out. These are the reasons, these areas of shame that we feel the need to hide and cover and to not be real with God, real with ourselves and real with 
one another. But David says something else in verses 7 and then 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. This means that even those places that feel most dark to you, most alone, where you feel most vulnerable, that God is there with you. That His presence is there. And in His presence, darkness is transformed. That your darkness becomes light. That He's not scared to go into the dark places and the abysses of your life just because they're dark. It's comforting, right? But the challenging part is that He is present to us most acutely that true spiritual change happens most when we open ourselves up to Him in those internal spaces that feel so dark to us, that we feel so vulnerable. You see, and, and here's the thing about Christianity, and as far as I can tell, it's unique in its approach to God, that He's not looking for the achiever, the saint, the morally perfect, the, overcome, the overcomer in order to gather all of those types of people and to build a people for himself. No, in fact, he's looking for people like you and I. He's looking for weak, vulnerable, humble, needy people. And you see the incarnation, that idea that God himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus and walked among us tells us that he didn't come to love us because of our good parts, but to see us and heal us and sit with us in our broken parts, in our dark places. We see that entering into our darkness, sitting with us in the abyss, is in his very nature. In fact, it's the very plan of salvation. So the question is, do you want to be saved? Do you want that sort of salvation? You don't have to take hold of it. You can continue living the life as you have it right now, and you, continue, you can continue to keep God out of those places. But Christian salvation means you're willing to invite Him in, that you're willing to be changed in the places that you don't know you even need to be changed in. This is what David does so well over and over throughout the Psalms as he gives us permission to be the person that we are and not the person, person that we wish or pretend we are. You see, and this is hard for us introverts, that he externally processes with God. He's not shy about his sin and his neediness. He essentially is talking to God and saying, you know, God, this is who I am, and this is what you, got, you have to work with. He gives us permission to be ourselves in the presence of God, yet not wanting to stay where we are. Gives us permission to change, to be changed. And this is what I think he's doing in verses 19 through 22, which we didn't read, not because they're less valuable, but because we only have so much space in our bulletin. But verse 19 begins this way. And pay attention, this is hard stuff. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. 
Now this comes seemingly out of nowhere in this psalm because this psalm, up until this point, for 18 verses, has been this intense psalm of adoration and praise of God. 1 through 6, he's talking about God's majestic omniscience and the tender way that God knows David intimately and personally. And then 7 through 12, he gives gratitude and has confidence in God's loving presence in all areas of his life. Where can I go from your spirit? As if to say nowhere, that you are always with me. And 13 and 18 through 18, God takes this awesome power that he has and he begins to gently create David. And it says that God has innumerable thoughts, innumerable delights in the person of David. And then verse 19, if only you'd slay the wicked. It's a bit of a non sequitur, right? He's going on and on about the praise of God in this tender way. And then, if only you'd take care of these guys for me, God. Would you take them out? Well, let's try and sort this out because there's a number of places in the Psalms that have this sort of language. They're called imprecatory Psalms where the psalmist is praying curses or praying judgment upon those who oppose God. Now, David is, of course, a warrior king. He's an Old Testament warrior. And maybe he's calling down death upon the enemies of Israel, those who are outside of the gates, those who are trying to kill David and kill his his compadres. These are enemies who seek to harm the people that are under his care. So maybe that's what he's doing. Well, yes and no. But notice something very crucial in verse, verse 20. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. They misuse your name. It's very similar to commandment number three. He's not calling down judgment on other nations, judgment on those who are outside of the camp, but upon, the, upon people within Israel, those who are wrongly appropriating God's name to justify bloodthirsty violence. Now, that's a, that's a big adjustment, I think. And that actually sounds, and this may come as a bit of a shock, it sounds a bit like Jesus. If you read Matthew 23, it's full of imprecatory statements like this. And they're said by Jesus toward the enemies of God. But notice again, who are the enemies? It's not those on the outside. It's the religious class. It's the Pharisees who, and this is what Jesus says, shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Incredible. Jesus' judgment is cast not towards the immoral, but to those who are so moral that they can't conceive of others less than them having a seat at God's table. And he (laughs) sort of lays into them. They're greedy, self-indulgent, hypocrites. They're full of violence towards the faithful, all in the name of God. Maybe for us in our context, it's the Westboro Baptist Church that they are so high on the totem pole of religious certainty that everyone else looks like a heretic. But to the people that Jesus is talking about, and likely the people that David is talking about, it's not a fringe movement. It's not a movement that you can sort of ignore and let them go off and do their own thing. These were the people in power. These were the people that had the keys to the kingdom. And it's probably true that David is praying about the same sorts of villains. 
But there's another aspect to this, and here's where we circle back around to self-examination. Because after calling down judgment on others, likely those who are limiting the work of God in the nation of Israel, after calling down judgment on them, David invites scrutiny, scrutiny upon himself. Verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He calls for judgment upon these people who are harming the people of God, but then asks for scrutiny upon his own motives. Am I right in thinking this way, God? So perhaps, instead of giving us the justification of us hating our enemies and calling down judgment upon them, what David is doing, what this psalm is doing, is giving us a model for bearing our soul out before God, to bring our unfiltered thoughts and invite God's examination. Maybe this isn't how we should pray towards people that we don't like, but it's an invitation to allow our darker elements to emerge in God's presence so that He can work on them, so that He can help us sort them out. More than any other writer that I have come across in the Bible, David bears his soul. He's real. He's in process, and he's willing to allow his growth and his sometimes insecurity and immaturity to give us insight into our own. He seems to be confident enough in the safety of God's love that he doesn't have to edit his own thoughts before bringing them to God. He can externally process. It's so difficult for many of us to understand this emotional and relational security, the safety that David has to be so free with himself in God's presence. He pours out his truest feelings and invites God to help him sort it out. And this takes practice. It takes learning. It takes being formed spiritually to bring your unedited thoughts in the presence of God and then receive his love in spite of it. We've been, we've been taught, we've learned over and over in childhood and in adulthood that we should be careful with whom we let our guard down. We've been rejected by a friend in childhood. We went out for something in high school. We didn't make the team. Our parents either berated us or withdrew into silence when we misbehaved. And so we've been taught that love is very conditional. It's a conditional thing and it must be earned and it must be kept Maybe a spouse has turned us away. A job has let us go because of some flaw, whether perceived or real, it doesn't matter. So it's difficult to give ourselves over to God's penetrating gaze. We'd rather be invited into the front door with fanfare and recognition and fireworks. Finally, the party can get started because now I'm here. But grace doesn't work on people that well who think of themselves that way. Grace works on people with yesterday's clothes on, people without money, people without anything to barter, people with friends of ill repute. Grace works on back alley people, people with addictions and wounds and insecurities and confusion rather than overconfidence, or at least on the sort of people that have the self-awareness to know that though their struggles may not include those sort of things, that their struggles are nonetheless very much the same. Somehow, David has been able to push through his false self and is willing to be known and seen by God. 
He's willing to be corrected. He's humble enough to say, God, not everything about me is perfect. Would you come in and help me change? Well, how does he get there? And we'll end with this. He gets there with something that we have to hold in tension with what I've just told you. Because you see, David knows that he's a back alley guy. That he has all this sin to confess. And yet, at the same time, verse 13, For you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And your works are wonderful. I know that full well. In our desire to grow spiritually, to change, to become more mature, to become better, different people, we can't fail to notice the beauty of who we all already are, the beauty of our uniqueness, the fact that God looks at you now as you are and says you are beautifully and wonderfully made, that He has innumerable loving thoughts towards you. You see, God looks on all of you and says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. His works, which include you, are wonderful. He loves you before you change. And to convince you of this, He gives you the ultimate emblem of His love, His very own Son, who comes and sits with you in your darkness and goes to the cross to eradicate your darkness. And it's only in remembering that, in believing the Gospel, that we can become comfortable in being deeply flawed and deeply loved at the very same time. Deeply flawed and deeply loved simultaneously. You see, if you're overacquainted on one hand with how deeply flawed you are, you'll tend to be despairing and you'll be a spiritual Eeyore. Woe is me. There's nothing good about me. Everything is terrible about me. Every time someone gives you a confident, it's all about no, 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 no a spiritual Eeyore, if all you know and all you understand is how deeply flawed you are. Or if you're overacquainted with the special place that you occupy in God's heart, without understanding your flaws and failures, you'll be a spiritual Grinch. You won't understand how to give grace to someone else. Self-examination isn't just about opening ourselves up to God's scrutiny, though that's part of it, a big part, but it's also opening ourselves up to the declaration of His unwavering love. And you got to have both. And you see that by contemplating Jesus. You see that by looking at Jesus on the cross. Because on the cross, you see, my needs were so great that He had to send His only Son to pay the ultimate sacrifice to bring me in to His kingdom. But at the same time, His love was so great that no cost was too high. And friends, as you contemplate that, as you examine yourself through those two lenses, then you can begin to see parts of yourself that you don't necessarily want to see, but you can see them with confidence. You can see them with an awareness that Jesus loves you in spite of them. And therefore, you don't change in order to gain God's love and God's favor, but you change because you already have it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that we would not be spiritual Eeyores or spiritual Grinches, but that we would be alive unto the gospel, which tells us that we are deeply flawed and deeply loved at the same time. Lord, as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, which depicts that 
in great detail, in physical detail, that we would take hold of your offer of the gospel once more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.